Hey, everyone. I was thinking that you guys are getting pretty good at talking to each other. It's a good thing, though. You know, we, I think we come into the house of God, and I know I've, I've done this before. Like, you kind of come in, don't really talk to anybody, sing four songs, hear a message, and then leave. How many, how many have done that? Come on. Right? It's like you're driving home, and you're like, oh, I didn't even have one conversation with, like, one person. That, that's not a good thing. Uh, so it, it feels right that we're uh, really trying to put that more into the, um, kind of weave it into the fabric of what we do here on Sunday mornings, that we interact with each other. And we're just taking that 10-minute block. I know some people hate it because, you know, you're super introverted. I get it. I get it. I'm shy, too. <clears throat> but I can just hide in my office. <laughs> I'm doing work, you know. I'm preparing for the sermon. I don't... Actually, I just don't feel like talking to anybody. <laughs> now I, I try to get out here and push past my comfort zone. But I was thinking that we're getting good at talking with one another. But I also want us to be sort of just as good at talking with, with God, right? Because one of our desires is to be a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus talked about that. It's actually from rooted in Isaiah 56, that God's desire is for his people, his, you know, when we come together, the assembly, that it would be a, a place of prayer, a house of prayer, that we'd be really comfortable uh, praying to God. Because just like, um, you know, I might have a, a little conversation with Rudy because he's a real person, and, you know, and so I usually connect with him a little bit each week, um, but Jesus is a real person, and he is in our midst. The Bible says where two or three are gathered, uh, Christ is in our midst. He dwells within us. He dwells within his church. He's the head of the church. He's with us in this place. So it's not a weird thing. I know it's, if somebody's not a Christian, it is weird to them, but for those who are followers of Jesus, it shouldn't be strange at all for us to just talk to God, right? He's invisible to our eyes, so it, 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 it takes some getting used to, right? But he's present in this place. Let's take that in. Jesus, we acknowledge you. You're here with us. You're not up out there beyond the stars, uh, up in the heavens somewhere uh, you are transcendent, you are up in the heavens, you are glorious, you fill all things in every way, but you are also near to us. You are here in our midst. Uh, so Jesus, we acknowledge you, we love you. I pray that this message would penetrate hearts today, it would encourage us, it would provoke us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm excited to, to share this word with you. Um, we are doing a series, uh, if you're brand new with us this morning, it's called Desperate Prayers, and we're just looking at different desperate prayers in the Bible. And so this morning, we're going to look at one of the great desperate prayers of the Bible uh, from Hannah. 
and it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, if you want to follow along. So desperate prayers are prayers that are sort of uh, turbocharged. Uh, there's a greater intensity compared to our, I guess, our normal prayers, right? Desperate prayers happen when we come up against things we cannot accept and yet we cannot change. Often we exhaust all of our human abilities, you know, to maybe fix a problem, but to no avail. We come to sort of come to wit's end over a thing. For example, there's many examples in the Bible, but for example, the woman with the flow of blood recorded in the Gospels went 12 years with the issue and had spent all of her money on doctors and she came to a point of desperation. And the picture is of her kind of ruthlessly pushing through the crowds uh, to touch, just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment that she might be healed. Joshua and David, being warriors, often came up against impossible situations and cried desperately for divine intervention and God would answer their cries. Jonah, the classic story, I guess it's kind of a kid's story. It's funny that it's kids who are, it's like really a dark story if you think about it. But Jonah was definitely up against an impossible situation, being in the belly of a whale. Think of when he was there, he had no idea where's the whale going. How long am I going to be in this belly? How long is it going to take me to, to die? How am I going to die in the belly of this whale? He was in a situation that he could not save himself. And of course, he cries out. Jonah chapter 2 is just his cry, desperate cry. How about the time when the Israelites were between a rock and a hard place? Right On one side, they had the Red Sea. There was millions of them right, clustered together, moving away from Egypt, trying to get away. And on one side, the Red Sea. On the other side, an angry Egyptian army coming to slaughter them. That was a desperate situation. We could talk about Esther on the brink of genocide. We could talk about Jeremiah being thrown into a cistern to die. Or how about Daniel in the lion's den? What is he going to do? That's a desperate situation. Or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of course, uh, being thrown into the fiery furnace how are they going to save themselves from that situation? Or the Apostle Paul spending 36 hours in the open sea. I don't know if he was holding on to a little piece of wood or something like that. Desperate situation. Couldn't save himself. Peter shackled in prison. It seems like a pattern that God's people often find themselves in situations that drive them to pray desperate prayers for deliverance. God responds to our desperate petitions. When we're up against maybe personal demons too strong for us, um, a temptation that keeps beating us, forgiving someone who deeply hurt us, debilitating fears, or maybe the inability just to cope with life, anxiety, 
depression, illness, even death itself, right? These are all situations that we come up against at different points in our life, and they're sort of beyond our ability to deal with, right? It makes me think of Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 1, where he said, you know what we suffered in Asia and how we were pressed beyond measure above strength. We thought we were going to die. We were in despair. We were, we were pressed up against a wall in such a way that it just it drove us to, to God. It, it sort of taught us to depend on God and not ourselves. But we come up against these situations where we need God to come through. Now, God does come through, but I'd be lying to say that God always answers all of our desperate prayers exactly the way we want him to, right? John the Baptist probably prayed earnestly to be freed from prison. He was not free. He was beheaded. Jesus prayed that the cup of suffering would be taken from him. It was not. Paul prayed over and over and over that the thorn in his flesh, which we're not really sure what that is, he called it a messenger of Satan, that this messenger of Satan would just sort of get off his back. He prayed this over and over that it would be removed, but it was not. But it is safe to say that almost always... God grants the desperate petitions of his people. And if he doesn't grant the request, like in the case of Paul with the thorn in the flesh, he always provides grace to endure through it. Amen? Amen. But there is something about desperate praying that touches God. You even get the idea in scripture that God's mind is changed at times. Right? I think of Hezekiah who was ill and dying and I'm pretty sure he was, he, this is it, like you're done. I think he was predicted to die and yet he cries out, sort of, you know, just has it out with God and God grants him an extra 10 years to live. So listen, to not pray desperately and boldly because in some cases, God does not give us what we ask for, I think is, is foolish, He almost always gives us the precise thing that we ask for. I mean, Jesus even taught this, right? He said, ask and keep asking. You know, petition the Lord and keep petitioning the Lord until you receive. And then he gives us the example of an earthly father. What earthly father, if his son asked for a loaf of bread, would give him a stone? You know, he wouldn't do that. If if, if earthly fathers wouldn't do that, how much more will God, the heavenly father, grant the requests of his children. Scripture says we have not because we ask not. In James chapter four, right? I recently heard this statement. 100% of the prayers we don't pray will not be answered. That was really good. (laughs) Our problem isn't that we pray desperate prayers that are not answered. Our problem is that we don't bother to even ask God for things. Or we pray and give up almost immediately because the answer didn't come quick enough. Is it am I just talking about myself? Am I preaching to myself only today? I think this is this is what we do. 
Imagine if we prayed and did not stop praying until God answered. Desperate prayers do not let go until God answers, until God either grants the request or clearly just breaks through and says no. It's very easy to passively accept things as they are and listen, even construct theological explanations to justify our acceptance. But there are certain things we ought not to accept. We are called to pray desperately until God moves. And I'm talking about desperate petitions for things like besetting sins in your life, maybe an addiction, a failing marriage, a backslidden son or daughter. How about demonic strongholds in a region? Fear that keeps us silent about Jesus. Debilitating anxiety, a downcast, joyless spirit. How about relational estrangement with somebody who's sort of an important person? Maybe it's a, a parent or a sibling. Prodigals to come home, our family members to be saved, our hard heart to be melted, that the power of sin would be broken, and a thousand other things. Are these things not worthy of our passion, our desperation? Are they not worth contending for furiously? I mean, what if an answer doesn't come? What should we do? Well, Jesus told us what to do. He said, pray and do not faint. We ought always to pray and not give up, Luke 18. Keep on, pray until, like Jacob said to the angel he wrestled with, I will not let you go until you bless me. There are a million people in greater Providence, which is really all of Rhode Island, and most are not ready to stand before Jesus. The young generation growing up now is possibly the most spiritually lost generation that we've ever seen since the founding of this nation. Many of us have relatives who we know are not ready to stand before God. We have friends that we love dearly who are completely deluded into thinking Jesus is unnecessary for their life. My question is, shall we just accept these things? Well, this is what it is, you know. Um, yeah, well, yeah, but they're lost. I guess they're, I guess they're going to hell. Yeah, it's true. I'm glad I'm not going to hell, but I guess they are. Is that how, like, that doesn't seem like the heart of Jesus. Shall we stand by and passively watch Satan take our own children captive? I pray that we would pray desperate prayers and not faint, that we would contend for revival in this generation. May these verses in Isaiah 62 describe us. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They shall never be silent. 
You who put the Lord in remembrance. That's just, he's talking about those who follow Jesus, those who follow God, those who fear the Lord, those who are walking with God. You who put the Lord in remembrance. Take no rest and give him, God, no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He's speaking about a specific thing here, but it's a principle of giving ourselves no rest and giving God no rest until he moves, until he answers our cries. One of the strangest things that we do as Christians is pray things, but we don't follow up. Wouldn't it be weird if, if I don't know, if, if, I, if I did that, I was like... Um, Mark, I'm looking at Mark. You know, I went to Mark and said, "Hey, can I? Uh, I really need to borrow one of your tools. Uh, that you know, to whatever, some tool. I don't even know. I don't have many tools. <laughs> I can't even think of it. A chainsaw. Okay, I need to borrow your chainsaw because I definitely don't have one of those. And and it's like, you know, like he doesn't text back. He doesn't email back. I call him, leave voicemails, like." It's just, then I just, I don't know, I just leave it. I just don't even follow through. Like, dude, like that's weird. We kind of do that with God. We ask and well, I, don't, I don't know, maybe, I guess I would like conclude, well, maybe Mark doesn't want to give up his chainsaw. Maybe it's too nice or something or he thinks I'm going to break it or I don't know how to use it, which I don't. <laughs> but we kind of do that with God. We like ask him things and then it doesn't seem like it happens right away. So then we just kind of move on. I don't know. I don't know. I guess God didn't want to, I guess maybe just didn't want to, didn't want to do it. So we, we move on. It's a strange way that we relate to God. Well, all this leads to the text I want to share with you today that I think perfectly exemplifies someone coming to a place of desperation. As I mentioned, it's the story of Hannah. And I'm going to just take you through this story. Uh, It's the first 20 verses in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Um, So here we go. This first verse is just terrible, okay? I'm just telling you that because it's full of names that I don't know how to pronounce. There was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. All right, we're done with verse one. Okay, verse two. He had two wives. Let's just stop and just say it's not a good idea to have two wives. And this story is like a case in point for this, all right? But the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, in our society, it's quite uh, common and normal for women to not have children, whether by choice or not, and to not marry. Uh, Women today find their worth in a variety of different things. But in Hannah's day, we're talking about 1070 BC or 1071, the point of this story, uh, the worth of a woman was found, I'm not saying this is right, but this is just the reality of this day in 1070 BC in this region of the world. The worth of a woman was found in her ability to have children. 
in the Jewish culture, it was even worse because the Jews believed, rightly so, that the Lord closed or opened a woman's womb. And this is where the bad theology came in. And if the Lord closed a woman's uh, womb, most thought it was because of her sinfulness. So it wasn't just that like Hannah just really wanted to have a baby and, you know, the joy of raising kids. Like she wanted, this, is, this was deeper than that. She wanted her life to matter in that culture. Uh, this was a really, really important thing. Well, verse three says, now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. These guys are a couple bozos that you can read about. But this verse gives us a little insight into Hannah's husband, Elkanah. He was a devout least outwardly religious man, uh, he, that he traveled once a year to Shiloh shows that he was probably pretty well off and he was able to kind of feed his family well. But the state of things at this particular time in the history of God's people was deplorable. You can read about how messed up uh, Hophni and Phinehas were. You can read it in the following chapters um, in First Samuel. But it's safe to say that when Elkanah went to Shiloh for the feast each year, he probably did not hear the word of God preached with clarity and with power. I think he was an unspiritual man, honestly, as we'll see, who was involved in sort of outward religious rituals. We have really no evidence that he was a man of God, a man of integrity a man who walked with God. Verse four says, on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Now on the surface, it seems like Elkanah is kind of a good guy here, right? Oh, it's so nice. He's giving a double portion. He's giving portions of food to all of his family members and, you know, to Hannah an extra portion because he loved her and seemingly maybe felt bad, I guess, that the Lord was not allowing her to have children. I don't think we should doubt that he loved her, but we will see that he greatly lacks wisdom and empathy. And favoring Hannah with extra food, I think probably wasn't a good idea like the handbook of like how to have a successful marriage with two wives. That was probably like in the first chapter. Like you don't give a lot to one and or love one more than the other. That's going to cause a lot of issues. And it's possible, listen, that the reason Panina was so mean to Hannah was that she was jealous that Elkanah almost seemed to kind of like Hannah better. Well, verse six says, and her rival, speaking of Peninnah, Hannah's rival, used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It's just mean. And it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. 
this is clear evidence that Hannah was experiencing trauma. This evil rival wife, Panina, was striking blows at the most sensitive parts of Hannah. We aren't talking here about like Panina maybe slipping up, right, with her words and maybe saying something a little insensitive. It's not like that. No, she is bent on crushing her opponents. She was competitive. She was out to beat Hannah into the ground. She was pulling the most hurtful words she could find in her arsenal and hurling them continually at Hannah. And this went on year after year after year. Reading in between the lines, you get the idea that Hannah just kind of took it, right? There's no record of her fighting back, retaliating. She was meek and she was a godly woman. But humans, all humans, are not robots, right? We feel things deeply. We are not designed to cope with abuse, especially the persistent abuse of someone we live with. It tears, it grates it us, it crushes until the spirit is broken. Hannah did not get better at handling the abuse over time, did she? She actually became worse. She was utterly distraught to the point of weeping and not eating. The loss of appetite is often a tangible sign, right? That something is off, either physically or mentally, with a person. That's why doctors often ask about uh, a person's appetite. When people are dying, for example, they often stop eating, and that's not a good sign. I think Hannah was dying emotionally from the abuse, Now, you might be wondering, like me, why the husband Elkanah allowed this abuse to go on, right? Did he not notice? I have to believe he was very aware. But there's no record of him protecting Hannah or advocating for Hannah or trying to mediate in some wise way. Perhaps he was afraid of Panina. I mean, she sounds like pretty scary, actually. Maybe Panina made it clear to him that if he got in the way of her abuse of Hannah, oh, she's going to punish him in ways that he can only imagine. Though it seems ridiculous that he turned a blind eye to all this, it's actually quite common, isn't it? in situations of abuse for this to happen. For example, a mother pretends not to know or see that her husband or boyfriend is doing certain things to the daughter. So I think Elkanah loved Hannah, but it was a very flawed love. Verse 8, And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? 
And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than 10 sons? <laughs> Reading these lines, I, I just have to, they're almost funny. Like this is a joke, right? This is, he's being just funny right now. You know, because it, it sounds like he's, he's joking, but he's actually not. His words show an utter lack of comprehension of what Hannah was going through. Why do you weep? Like, are you seriously asking that? Don't you see what's happening? It also makes you realize how stupid it was to give Hannah a double portion of food when she wasn't even eating. It'd be like a friend weeping and, and unable to eat because they're so distraught and, and you come and to be helpful and you give them like another giant meatball on their plate. Like, it's just... It's not helpful. It's unthinkable. It's almost insulting. It's condescending. It's so missing the mark. And it's subtly uh, judgmental too, isn't it? He's saying in so many words, oh, you shouldn't be sad. You should be thankful. You're focusing on the negative. You should grow up. You should stop being a big baby. That he actually says that being married to him is better than having 10 sons was like saying her deep desire to have a son was just pathetic. Now, maybe I sound harsh toward Elkanah, but I think it's important to see that Hannah's trauma came not just from Peninnah, right. but also from her husband. Yes. Mm -hmm. Maybe in more, more subtle ways, but it also came. She was, she was swimming in an environment that created trauma. Verse 9, and after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, this phrase just punched out at me, and I'll comment on it in a few minutes. It says this, Hannah rose. It's not totally clear, but I'm guessing that they in this verse was referring to Elkanah, Peninnah, and all Peninnah's beautiful children, you know, feasting. I picture Hannah hiding in the bathroom, Maybe she went out and fed the animals under the stars with tears streaming down her face. Maybe she planted herself at the sink and just washed dishes so the running water would drown out the sound of her crying. But then it says, Hannah rose. I see this as her breaking point. She inwardly kind of snaps. She's had enough. Year after year, she puts up with abuse and her own husband is utterly clueless regarding her feelings. For years, she was meek and she wept a lot. But strangely, there's no record of her petitioning the Lord, right? She just kind of accepts all this. And we aren't told why, but it may be that she felt that she had to just accept her lot in life. Maybe she felt that she was sinful and under God's wrath. We know her husband's counsel, her husband's theology, if you will, was that, you know, she should just be thankful and content. But something here puts her over the edge. Something clicks within her that at last drives her into the presence of God to sort of have it out with God. It says, Eli... The priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. 
In verse 10, she was deeply, Hannah was deeply distressed and praying to the Lord and wept bitterly. So Hannah arose and decided to go to the house of the Lord. Now, it's not always necessary to go to a physical, like, you know, house of worship, um, of course, but it was probably the only place she could go to get away from her crazy, dysfunctional family. Since this was after a time of eating and drinking, it was probably in the evening. The old man, Eli, was there. The priest was kind of sitting in a seat, almost like just, you know, kind of being the doorkeeper, I guess, of, you know, at the house of the Lord. And he watches this woman come in who was emotionally distressed and weeping bitterly. And verse 11 says, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. She's talking about just a dedication of her son into the work of God, into the ministry. Now on the surface, it almost seems like Hannah is making a deal with God here, right? Like, okay, God, uh, I'll dedicate the boy to you if you let me have a baby. But I don't think that's accurate. I think that's missing. I think it was already in Hannah's heart to do that. She was desperately crying out to the Lord to remember her and her affliction. She's pleading, she's begging She's not demanding anything of God, but is offering up loud cries and petitions, right? Like Jesus did. Now, maybe this should be a side note, but I, I don't want to speculate too much. But it's possible that the Lord kept Hannah's womb closed to get her to this point of surrender. Maybe when she first had a desire to have children, uh, it was sort of tightly wound up in her own plans for the child, like maybe she wanted to have business together or maybe, you know, since Elkanah wasn't really that great of a husband and was kind of not so empathetic, maybe she would find empathy in her son and had real big desires and plans for that. But over time, she may have kind of let go of her dreams for the child and came to a place of submitting fully to God's plans. And she doesn't seem resentful about it, right? She's not saying, fine. You know, if the only way you'll give me a boy is if I dedicate him to you, then fine. I'll do it already. Like, that's not how her prayer sounds at all. She's just come to a place where, Lord, my life is in your hands. This child I'm going to have is, I give him to you. Verse 12, as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. <laughs> Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, <laughs> it's like she can't even go to church without you know, getting abused. <laughs> How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you, lady. I mean, it's like, seriously, is he really saying this? Like, this guy needs to go back to seminary or something. 
unspiritual, Eli completely misjudged her. The guy was so unfamiliar with the sound of deep travailing prayer that he mistakens it for drunkenness. I don't want to stretch the application too much here, but I do feel compelled to say that when you pray desperate prayers, don't be surprised if uh, certain religious people, you know, people who identify as Christian, don't get you. Oh, they will judge you. They will criticize you. They will just think you're weird. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, so much grace in this. No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Hannah is so loving toward this judgy priest, right? I mean, she calls him my Lord, so respectful. She reasons humbly with him. She isn't offended by his misjudgment. In fact, she almost seems like a different woman here, doesn't she? Again, it's that snapping. Something changed in her. She's not just taking the abuse. She didn't just like put her head down and quietly, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and just kind of walk away. No, she stands up for herself here. Not in a lashback kind of way, but in a bold woman of God kind of way. And she's actually witnessing here to the backslidden priest isn't she? She begins to explain that she was pouring out her soul to the Lord. And I think Eli, you know, whatever remained of spiritual substance in him, I think suddenly realized that he was in the presence of someone who possessed a genuine and deep relationship with the Lord. And he kind of instantly changes his tune, doesn't he? Verse 17, then Eli answered. I mean, he just becomes nice all of a sudden. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Now, I've read this story so many times, and to be honest, I've always been a little confused at this point, okay, because everything happens so fast. Like, Hannah is vexed. She's weeping bitterly. The priest accuses her of being drunk. She defends herself. He blesses her, and she walks away no longer sad. Wait, what? Whoa, wait, this it just happens so fast. Wait, what, what just happened? It's like it happens so quickly that we miss it. Here's what I think happened. When Eli said the words, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. I think it became to her the very words of the Lord. And many of us, I think, understand how this works, right? In our walk with God. Well, sometimes God will speak to us directly. It seems like he often speaks through 
teachers and preachers and prophets and even ordinary members of a church, right? When somebody just maybe is praying over you or they're teaching something and there's a certain line or a certain paragraph, a certain idea that comes through and somehow the Holy Spirit makes it real to you and sort of almost like the Holy Spirit comes and whispers, that was for you. That line right there was for you. And so I think she knew that the words spoken by Eli were spoken by Eli were God's words. And then verse 19 says, they rose early in the morning and they worshiped before the Lord and they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. I think we all know what that means. And the Lord remembered her. Verse 20, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. I have five minutes left to give this final and important thought. Hannah's desperate prayers resulted in God doing exceedingly abundantly beyond what she asked or even imagined. (laughs) You know, because she had, she not only had a son, check this out, she had Samuel the prophet who would lead the nation in revival. Samuel was one of the greatest men of God in biblical history, a burning and shining light in his generation. And his influence extends over 3,000 years. I mean, he's impacted billions of people. Think about this. Hannah was, at least from a societal standpoint, a nobody, right? Right? She was a barren woman. She was abused. She was broken. She was kind of crushed in spirit. She was like a damaged person. She was not looked upon as someone expected to do anything great. Society viewed her as a nothing. She was in a category of sort of least likely to contribute anything important to the kingdom of God. And yet... It is so like God to choose the poor and the forgotten and the crushed and the outcast and make them his mighty instruments for his divine purposes. And it provokes us to ask ourselves, what do we think we could contribute to God's kingdom? How do you view yourself? How do people around us perceive us Do they think we could do anything great for the kingdom of God? Do they look at us and, you know, think we probably won't amount to very much? I want to say this. Don't underestimate what God can do with a lowly person who makes desperate petitions to the Lord. The promises of God have no favoritism. Being wealthy or gifted or successful or smart does not give anyone an advantage in obtaining the promises of God, right? Anyone, anywhere who diligently seeks God will be rewarded and will bear much fruit. Whosoever is willing to cry out to God will be blessed. God often chooses the weak things of the world 
to do his greatest works through. I mean, consider Moses the stutterer, David the shepherd boy, the disciples who were ordinary, uneducated fishermen. The Lord delights to do great exploits through people the world is unimpressed by. That means there's hope for me and for you. So I want to encourage us to pray desperate prayers and not give up until we get answers and watch what the Lord will do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray right now in our remaining minute or two. Jesus, we, we, we know who we are. We're, we're not much. Like, we're not mighty. We're not incredible people. We're just ordinary individuals. We are flawed. We're just earthen vessels. We are very aware of all the different complexity of weaknesses that we have. But Lord, we believe that, that you answer the cries of your people. And we pray that you would use every single one of us, every one of us, to bear much fruit. Lord, I think about the dreams and the plans that you have for each and every one of us, not just as a church, but even as individuals. Lord, you want to do great things through us. Lord, I pray that we would not sell ourselves short or sort of underestimate what you can do through us. You're just looking for vessels. It's not about us and, and what we can do. It's, it's, it's us getting out of the way and allowing Christ, the living God, to flow through us. So yeah, we say with Paul, you know, we no longer live, but Christ lives through us, in us. Have your way in us. Lord, do whatever you want to do through us. And I pray that our lives would be a sort of display of the power of God. That when people look at us as so ordinary and broken and they just look at the kind of the vessel they look at the outward vessel. They look at sort of who we are. And then they realize what is happening through our lives, that they would be stunned by the reality of Jesus Christ. Lord, use our lives as instruments. We pray desperately that you would do that in and through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, guys. Have a great day. Have a great week.